I want to start with a visual this morning. Actually, it's going to be the same visual twice, but each time it's going to have a different illustration. And while I do the visual, I want you to think which illustration resonates with you more. Okay, so the first one, the water is pure, the food coloring is impure. I add a little bit of impurity to the pure water, and all the water eventually becomes impure. Okay? Same visual, but this time, the water is impure, the food coloring is pure. Add a little purity to the impurity, and in a while, the impurity becomes pure. So, which illustration resonated more with you? I wonder if our emotional response to either one of those speaks to the way we may tend to live out our Christianity. Let me try to explain. The Old Testament is full of examples of the first illustration. If we come into contact with anything impure or unclean, we become impure or unclean. Here's an example from Leviticus on human corpses. Very unclean. Whoever touches a human corpse will be unclean for seven days. But this is a lot that applies when a person dies in a tent. If you just are in the same tent as a body that has passed away, you will be unclean for seven days. Every open container without a lid on it becomes unclean because they are in the same area as someone's dead. And then anyone out in the open who touches someone who has been killed, again, touching a corpse, you become unclean. And in Leviticus, Moses said, God said, Moses, tell the Israelites, you must keep the Israelites separate from things that make them unclean. Okay? So that's sort of the Old Testament. That's that first illustration. And if you were unclean, you needed to stay away from people so you didn't make them unclean. That's what, back in Numbers, command the Israelites to send away from the camp anyone who has a defiling skin disease or a discharge of any kind or who is ceremonially unclean because of a dead body. Send away male and female alike, send them outside the camp so they will not defile their camp. And we even see this understanding being lived out by the religious leaders in Jesus' day. So, the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. This is rich. This one is rich here. <laughs> These guys just, just brought an innocent guy to get killed, but they don't want to become unclean. Excellent. So, anyway, the palace is unclean, so they don't, they, they don't go in because they want to stay. Okay? But then you have Jesus. And suddenly, the second illustration is what matters. Okay? This is the standard. Now, see Jesus? Here he is. A man with leprosy. That's the definition of uncleanliness in the Old Testament. Came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand, touched the man. I am willing, he said, to be clean. Immediately he was clean with leprosy. Jesus, purity, touched impurity. It became pure. On another occasion, a large crowd followed, pressed around, and a woman who was there had been hemorrhaging for 12 years. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I 
just touched his clothes over the heel. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Unclean woman touches Jesus. He doesn't become unclean. She becomes clean. This one, he's at dinner at a Pharisee's house and a prostitute comes in and starts touching him and kissing his feet and all sorts of things. He doesn't become unclean. She becomes clean. In fact, she has her sins forgiven shortly after this. And then there's this beautiful one, which goes right to those examples I used in the Old Testament about dead bodies. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, he said, go away, the girl is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got He didn't just go into a room with a dead body. He touched it. He didn't become unclean. She came alive. The pure makes the impure pure. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That we are sinful, God touches us, and we become saints. Paul understood this so clearly, and he used this good news, brilliantly, I think, to dismantle the arguments of the would-be ascetics in Corinth. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through a believing husband, for otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Let's remind ourselves what Paul is dealing with here in 1 Corinthians, especially we have some visitors today, and especially because not all of us might have been here last week to remember where we're at in chapter 7. Some of the believers in Corinth are claiming that because they had already arrived in the new kingdom, remember, we've been, we've been through this 24, 25 weeks, some of these believers in Corinth, because of all the wonderful gifts the Holy Ghost had given them, are now convinced they should be living as though they were no longer in this kingdom, already in the new kingdom. Okay? Already hyper-spiritualized people, already almost angels. And they are now teaching that they should be doing away with anything that has to do with this kingdom. Getting rid of marriage, getting rid of sex, getting rid of any taking care of bodily interests or desires or needs. Okay? That's what's going on here in chapter 7. And Paul basically says, no. And he addresses all of the unique situations that the Corinthian believers are presenting him in order to support this agenda for spiritual asceticism. Okay? So that's a quick, in a nutshell, so everyone's where we're at and what Paul is dealing with. Okay, these are people that are saying, no, we should be living these aesthetically pure spiritual lifestyles. And Paul says, no, 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 you've misunderstood a lot of what I said to you when I was there and what I wrote to you. So he's going to address it. The unique situation he's addressing here is marriages between believers and unbelievers. See, in this letter that they sent to Paul, now to the things that you wrote. Remember, that's how he started this particular homily. They were saying all sorts of things. Listen, it's good for married people not to have sex. It's really good for married people to get divorced. And especially people who are married to unbelievers should really be getting divorced at this point. And it's their way of trying to get Paul to support their agenda. Which is, if someone doesn't want to be a spiritual ascetic, get rid of them. And, and Paul is like, absolutely not. 
He holds up the good news of Jesus, and he says, no. You don't divorce your unbelieving spouse simply because they're an unbeliever. Don't you know the power of God's love? Your unbelieving spouse will not make you impure. In fact, just the opposite is true. God's love in you may make your spouse pure. And then, see how he brings up here the kids, for otherwise your children are clean, but now they are holy. I love how Paul does this. Paul is always looking for inconsistencies and arguments and loopholes and these agendas that they're pushing. And he says, you know, you didn't say anything to me about getting rid of your kids. But your kids are the products of an unbeliever and a believer. So why are you getting rid of your unbelieving spouse if you're not getting rid of the kids? Paul is just always finding these inconsistencies and just nailing them with it. And that's why he says, for otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry. Now, I want to make a quick doctrinal side note here because this can be confusing. Verse 14 has given rise to literally countless and countless and countless debates. Okay, as what did Paul mean when he wrote sanctified and holy in this verse? So, there's no majority agreement on this. For me personally, this is me personally, okay, I do not think Paul is saying that you can become a Christian by getting married to a Christian or by being born to Christians. I I personally don't think that. I've read the arguments. Some of them are solid. Some of them are great, great arguments for that. I I just don't think it's consistent with Pauline's overall theology. When you take Pauline's and the Pauline theology, his entire library, I don't think it fits in. And I don't think it really fits in with um, with the overall message of Scripture. So I don't happen to think that. But work it through on your own. Okay? I wish, I wish I could do a word study and show you that these are different words, sanctified and holy, than Paul uses at different places, but they're not. They're the exact same word. So you, you have to come to terms with that on your own. What I happen to think is going on here is I think Paul's talking about the potential for redemption, for salvation, to come to an unbeliever because of the relationship with the believing spouse. Thistleton, I think, is helpful. He says the spouse's example... Witness prayer and living out the gospel make the spouse and the children in this sense holy. And I like Fee as well. Fee adds, as long as the marriage is maintained, the potential for their realizing salvation remains. Paul is setting forth a high view of the grace of God at work through the members of his own household. I love that. The pure making the impure pure. Now I just want to pause here and remind everyone again, this is not an easy chapter. That's why I spent all of last week just doing an introduction. And if you weren't here, I'm sorry. I recommend going back for that introduction. This is not an easy teaching today. It's a long one, too. I'm sorry. It's longer than I've ever taught before. But you'll, I hope you'll understand at the end why I've had to go so long today. I just want to ask you this. Remember what we've been doing as we've been studying Corinthians. Whether the details apply to us or not, We're reading the Bible to find our story, right? To apply it to our personal lives, not to apply it to anyone else's lives. And if the details might not matter to you, stay engaged in Scripture. Scripture matters. The story of Scripture will talk to Okay? And also today, because it's a difficult topic, let me get through everything. 
You know how I'm always saying about scripture, never take it out of context? Please take none of my sentences today out of the hole. Alright, let's get back to it. So, Fee, when he's talking about this, Paul is setting forth a high view of the grace of God at work through the members of his or her own household. He also cites Peter. Okay? In the same way, you wives should be willing to serve your husbands. That, remember, that can be read, you husbands should be willing to serve your wives. Peter was not as good as Paul was at speaking to both men and women. It was just a hang-up I think Peter had. Paul was phenomenal at it. In fact, that's one of the things, remember I said, we will see reading chapter 7, Paul is not patriarchal. Everything Paul writes in chapter 7, he says to women and men, which is unheard of. It's incredible, and we'll get there in the details. So anyway, in the same wise, you spouses should be willing to serve your spouses. How's that? That's better. Then even those who have refused to accept God's teaching will be persuaded to believe because of the way you live. You will not need to say anything. Your husband, your spouses will see the pure lives that you live with respect to God. That's beautiful. And, I think, is very consistent with Paul's overall teaching in chapter 7. Okay? Let's consider how he wraps up this specific argument about believers and unbelievers. Okay? Here's how he wraps it up. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know a wife whether you will save your husband, or how do you know a husband whether you will save your wife? God has called us to peace. See, Paul has been adamant with them that believers should not divorce their unbelieving spouse simply because they're unbelieving. But here, he acknowledges there are times when the unbelieving spouse is going to want to walk away. And so what Paul says is he qualifies, okay, in that situation, allow for divorce because it has more to do with this setting of a holy example that could potentially save both the marriage and ultimately the unbelieving spouse. His point here is, listen, how you approach such a situation peacefully, could bring about restoration to your marriage, and from there, possibly salvation to your spouse. Okay? And this echoes Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul said this to the Romans. Do the best you can to live in peace with everyone. This here is incredible because this comes at the very end of Paul telling us what it means to live like Christ. Here we go. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Wow, that's Christian living. This is why I teach grace at Canaan. And I, you know, when people say grace is easy, they don't get grace. Rules are easy. Legalism is easy. Because, you know, we get rid of chapters like this in our Bible. We don't read this because there's no rules there on how to do this, is there? 
I bet that's when you're reading it going, well, what does that mean in this situation? Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? We want the rules. And if someone will just give us a rule that we can follow, we're fine. No, Paul says, sorry, that's not grace. This is what it looks like to live like God. And right after this, right after this, verse 18, the very next sentence, was, sorry, be at peace with all people. Whereas I can go back and see, right? Do the best you can to live at peace. And that echoes what he's telling the Corinthians. Be at peace. And so again, what do we find right here in this chapter that seems to be all about sex and marriage and divorce and remarriage? No. Those are details of Corinthians' lives that Paul continues to teach his story. Imitate Christ. Why? So some might believe too. Remember what Paul said also in Romans? I love Romans Theology 101. That's what it should be called. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and times and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? If God uses kindness to bring about repentance in people, why would we use anything different? Hmm. And this so echoes Paul's own life when he says this. Maybe you'll save your husband. Maybe you'll save your wife. A little later in this letter, he's going to say this about himself. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things... Have you ever noticed how in today's culture, not just amongst Christians, but Christians do it too, it's like, this is the last thing anybody wants to do. Nobody wants to please anybody. It's either my way or no way. And I don't care what you say. Well, right here, Paul was, I please all men in all things. Not seeking my own way or my own profit, but the profit of many. So why? So that they may be saved. See, when we, li- we live in this kingdom... But our focus should be the next game. So that they may be saved. And then right after this, unfortunately, whatever scribe put in the chapters and verses blew it here. But this is the same sentence. The next sentence would be, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. See, we're right back. Right back to the imitation of Christ, even here among these details. So, and this is really underlying much of this argument Paul is making against the ascetics and their push for divorce and the end of sex and the end of marriage. Okay, Paul is basically saying, how do we live in relationship with others? Do we run away from situations that are too difficult? From people that may stain us, so to speak? Or do we take on the role of healer? The role of comforter? The role of purifier, even, in the lives of those who might not even love us? Paul's argument against divorce speaks to the very heart of his understanding of Christian theology. For Paul, Christian theology is all about reconciliation. From the very beginning of our scripture, 
we find the God story told to us often through the metaphor of marriage. God is the husband. We are the wife. And what we find as we read through that metaphor is that no matter how unfaithful a wife we are to God, he remains steadfast in his love for us. There's a Hebrew word in the Old Testament, hesed, H-E-S-E-D. It occurs 250 times. It means loyal, steadfast love. Most of those times, it's about God's love for us. God's love for us is unconditional. And it was finally revealed and proven that his love was unconditional at the cross. This is God's vow that he will never, ever turn his back on us, even if we turn our backs on us. Paul, then, brings this understanding of the God story into his arguments against Corinthian asceticism. And he says to them, you're using some form of bogus Christian theology to put an end to marriage? That is so inconsistent with Christian theology. I know that's challenging. I know it is. Especially for us now. Because marriage is for us in our time and space and for far different reasons than they were ending here. Paul is dealing with something very unique and specific here. Okay. And so when he says, listen, I give instructions. Wife should not leave her husband. The husband should not leave her his wife. If they do, they remain unmarried, whether you're believers or unbelievers. I know this is challenging. But the call to imitate Christ is always challenging. We talk about it a lot here, especially when we get into forgiving others. But it's also very beautiful. The reality that no matter what we do, God will always love us, that's beautiful. The possibility that we could be like God and love others no matter what they do to us, that's also beautiful. And maybe this is where you can start to see what I was talking about last week, what we're going to find as we go through chapter 7. That the underlying theme here, along with imitate Christ, that's Paul's always theme, but the underlying theme specific to chapter 7 is the circumstances we find ourselves in are not as important as we tend to think they are when we hold them up to eternity. In other words, Paul's saying, stay as you are. You can live like Christ in any circumstance. Here's the problem. This beautiful overriding theology of Paul's gets broken down into hard and fast rules that are often disconnected from this more beautiful, bigger picture. Chapters like this one get completely taken out of context and they get turned into black and white rule books. In the case of chapter 7, a rule book on marriage and divorce. And they get presented in ways that are hurtful, 
demeaning, excluding, that turn people away from God instead of draw people closer to God. See, we try to communicate what are truly beautiful ideals for humanity. I mean, is there anything more beautiful than God loves us no matter what we do? That's a beautiful ideal for us to love each other no matter what we do. So we try to communicate these beautiful ideals. But we end up doing it in ways that diminish and outcast us when we don't meet those ideals. But that's not God's way. Yeah, God holds up ideals for us. That's what Scripture's about. I think that's why people stop reading the Bible sometimes, because the ideals are so high. But the difference is, when God holds up these ideals, He always holds them up under the safe and welcoming vision of the cross. A vision that says, when we don't live up to God's ideals, He still loves us anyway. He will always help us move on even when we fall short. Remember, we don't make ourselves saints. God does. Kenneth Bailey has what I think is a brilliant illustration for this. The soldier in training on the firing range asks the sergeant, where am I to fire? The sergeant replies, shoot at the bullseye. The sergeant's answer is a command. But the soldier will not be court-martialed if he misses the bullseye. I like that. I like it a lot. See, Paul is certainly forceful here. This is tough. But to the married, I give instructions. Not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled. And that husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. <coughs> this is forceful. Hopefully, what we've been talking about this morning has been helpful in maybe understanding it better. But there are some other things we should be mindful of too. If we're going to avoid the traps of chapters like this. These chapters are filled with traps. Right? Fee explains those traps brilliantly. Some find Paul too harsh and try to find ways around the plain sense of the text. Others turn the text into law and make divorce the worst of all sins in the church. Neither of these seems an appropriate response. I like that. It's what I talked about last week, remember? Both these responses are dismissive. One dismisses everything because they don't like it, so they don't even read it. Ah, Paul's an idiot. We don't need him. The other has some pseudo-loyalty to it simply because they love rules, but they've taken the the rules right out of context. I think instead, Scripture needs to be engaged, not blindly dismissed or blindly followed. It needs to be engaged. (coughs) It's real. So, one of Paul's concerns when he's doing this teaching to the Corinthians, okay, is what Jesus said about this. Right here, this is one of his concerns. Listen, I'm giving these instructions, not I, but the Lord. Now, down here when he says, but to the rest I say, not the Lord, don't get carried away with that. I always love how people dive into Paul and go, see, it's really not scripture. No, no, all Paul's saying is, 
there wasn't such a thing as marriages between believers and unbelievers when Jesus was around. So he didn't have anything to say about it. That's all. Still Paul. Whatever Paul is is what Paul is. Okay? So, he's concerned about what Jesus says about this topic. So, let's see what Jesus says about this topic. Okay? Here in Luke, here in Matthew, here in Mark, Jesus says, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And you who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. There's Jesus' teaching, plain and simple, seemingly, on divorce and remarriage. Paul certainly wasn't going to contradict Jesus. That wouldn't have made sense for Paul. But I am confident to say this. Paul probably understood Jesus' teaching on this much better than any of us. Why? Number one, he had a conversation with the risen Christ. I have. Maybe some of you have. I have. Number two, he knew the guys, friends with some of them, who knew Jesus. The guys who heard Jesus give this teaching, Paul knew. They had conversations. Number three, and most importantly, maybe, Paul was a religious Jewish leader, a Jewish religious leader, before his conversion. Paul was exactly the kind of guys that Jesus was talking to. Okay? See, here's what happens. We read this, and we might miss Jesus' audience, who were these religious leaders who were very hypocritical. I'm going to get to that in a second. But the other thing I think sometimes we miss is that Jesus' point here is really not about divorce. It's about the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. See, see how he says it? Everyone who divorces his wife, okay, and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits. See, so th- this is what Jesus was getting at. Okay? Here's what Jesus was doing. He was passionately rejecting the religious leader's position on divorce and remarriage. So here's what he said right before he said this. Okay? Here's Jesus. His audience is religious leaders of Jews. The religious <laughs> Jewish leaders. He said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. But God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. And after that, that's when he says this. So what's going on? Here's what's going on. The religious leaders of Jesus' day allowed men to divorce for anything they wanted to get divorced for, if especially because the man simply wanted another woman to have guilt-free sex with. It's in writing. I was going to bring the quotes up. Even in many high-level Jewish writings, man could divorce his wife for making him a bad meal. Man could divorce his wife because he thought someone else was more beautiful. A woman, she couldn't divorce her husband. The best a woman could do was to ask her husband to divorce her. Fiercely patriarchal. Fiercely unfair. And, as Dungan points out, a hypocritically caving in before the pressure of sexual passing, and Jesus rejected it. 
These religious leaders had come out and were allowing men to do whatever they wanted so they could get rid of one wife and have guilt-free sex with the next one. And Jesus said, no, that's really not, has anything to do with God. Mark records for us Jesus' basis for his position. This is Jesus before he says the same thing about divorce. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. The idea of a married couple becoming one was not some romantic imagery for Jesus. This was not something that got said at weddings and was, oh, how nice. For Jesus, this was a reality. So for him, what he was trying to explain to these religious hypocrites was, well, this oneness that gets created can never really be undone. And that's what we see from him here. His focus is not divorce. His focus is what comes next. Jesus says basically to these hypocrites, listen, you write all the divorce papers you want. You write all the remarriage papers you want. I don't care. That next union you have, by definition, will be adulterous. That's what Jesus is dealing with. A little different, right, than taking a simple English statement out of Scripture and coming up with hard and fast rules. And this is the tradition Paul is passing down. We already saw, see, here's what Paul's saying the same thing. Look, don't get divorced, but if you do, stay as you are, or be right. We already saw Paul use the argument of oneness when he was telling them, can you not go to prostitutes, please? Because then you're just going to end up being one with them. Remember we saw that back in, when we were a couple weeks ago, or a couple months ago. Here he's using the same language Christ did, and he's basically saying, listen, if you're married, stay married. If you're divorced, stay divorced. And you hear the theme again? It's the circumstances. Stay as you are. Imitate Christ as we are. But I want to be perfectly clear about two things today. And if you haven't heard anything else, I said try to get Marriage, divorce, remarriage are incredibly complex issues. Incredibly. Now, I don't think just because we are technologically advanced... That makes us advance in every other way than ancient civilizations, so I don't want this to sound like a, just a blanket statement. I don't necessarily think that. However, I am convinced the reality of marriage today is a far different thing than it was in the culture Paul was talking to. Far different. And in the weeks to come, I think you will see that too. Okay? Because we're going to study what marriage is look like in his time. And I am confident in saying that these issues that Paul talked about 
are much more complex today than they were in his day. I, I am convinced of that. Therefore, it is probably a good idea not to become too dogmatic too quickly about what we think about these subjects. And if we ever do become dogmatic, which is good, it's good to have convictions, it's good to have strong faith, but if we do, we would do well, I think, to remember that we read Scripture to find our stories, not to find our neighbor's story. And so let's keep our dogma as the rules by which we, as the individual who has the dogma, lives by. In other words, if you, as an individual, happen to think that based on Scripture, divorce and remarriage are wrong, then I strongly suggest you, as an individual, be sure you don't get divorced and remarried. That always makes sense, right? And if more people live by their own dogmas, instead of worrying about their neighbor living by their dogma, maybe people will get along a little better. I think we should allow people to wrestle with Scripture on their own. Especially on subjects like this, that are incredibly complex. And once we dive into them, we realize, oh, maybe Paul was talking about something entirely different than we thought. We turn this, which speaks to us, powerfully speaks to us. Paul telling us we should live like Christ in all situations, that speaks to us. But to take 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and make it a hard and fast black and white rule book about marriage and divorce in 2012 America is a misuse of scripture, I'm sorry to say. He is dealing with ascetics who want marriage to end because of some bogus Christian theology. I've yet to meet. Well, actually, that's not true. I have met someone before who based Christian theology on getting rid of an unbelieving spouse, which was incredibly sad. I cried over Maybe they should have read chapter 7. We do not have to apply our dogma to other people's lives. My dad... The Holy Ghost and experience have taught me two very valuable things. My dad started it when I was young. The Holy Ghost, when I started to listen and experience just because I'm old. A, don't judge someone unless you've walked in their shoes because you might do the exact same thing. And B, what we hold as dogma today has a funny way of becoming an embarrassment tomorrow. The second thing I really want everyone to hear after such a difficult teaching. If you're divorced, if you're remarried, if you're unmarried, you're welcome here at Cana. And that is not with an asterisk We don't differentiate between people here. 
It's not Cana's way. No one here is a second-class citizen. Whether we're unmarried, remarried, divorced, married, at Cana, we're all sinners that God loves anyway. Please know you are welcome here. And more importantly, you're welcome at God's table. The past is past. The future is yet to come. All I know is this. Scripture is incredibly clear that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Our past, our future, and our present cannot separate us from the love of God. Paul wrote that. I did. And speaking of that love, I think the Bible is also clear about this. Whatever we may hold as truth, we are not called to be keepers of the faith. We are called instead to be like Christ. We are called to be the love we want to see in other people's lives. We're called to be a little bit of purity that might make others pure. For how do we know we just might save some?